Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so glad that you are here. If you're not familiar with Life Over Coffee, our street address is lifeovercoffee.com. That's where you will find our coffee shop. It is a sanctification center for believers. We love it when unbelievers come to our coffee shop. It's for them, too. But our content is written to and for and about Christians because we believe that any two Christians can sit down and they can do life over coffee as they spur one another on to love and good deeds. And I trust that you will use our resources, whether you use them personally or as you go about doing the work of discipleship within your sphere of influence. Please take advantage of all of our content. Uh, That would be fantastic and it would be our joy to serve you that way. For the next little bit, I want to talk about one of the sticking points that comes between uh, two believers, whether it's a husband and wife, parent and child, or church member or friend to friend, whatever that relationship is, when there is an ongoing conflict, almost always you're going to find unforgiveness as part of the problem. I have been doing biblical counseling for many years now, and this has been my experience, and I know it's been uh, many of yours too, that forgiveness and unforgiveness is always in play when there is some kind of offender and offended construct. Forgiveness and unforgiveness does not come easy. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most challenging concepts for Christians to come to terms with because someone has hurt them. And I know that every one of you have been on the receiving end of being offended, being sinned against by someone. For some of you, those offenses have uh, consequentially, they have been severe, which means it will make it even uh, more complicated and more difficult to work through the forgiveness process with the person who has offended you. Of course, we want to level the playing field, and we need to admit that we have sinned against many people in our lives as well. And so whether we are the offender or the offended, when it comes to forgiveness, it's something that we do need to understand. And I trust that the next few minutes that you spend with me, that I will bring some clarity. Hopefully it will help you to work through. Perhaps you're in one of those relational dust-ups with someone now. The recipients of unjust and unkind actions do experience legitimate disappointment, and it does not go away quickly. You remember Jesus talked about in Matthew 5 that there's some things that we can amputate out of our lives, like flipping on a switch or flipping it off. There are other things in our lives that do not go away as quickly. It takes some work to do because the offenses can hurt and they can really go deep into our souls. But the good news is, is that we do not have to despair no matter what has happened to you. And the reason for that is, is because we have a suffering Savior who went through many unjust trials, and He has left us a template for how to think about and how to respond when someone sins against us. But as you might imagine, the pathway to follow Jesus through suffering does have complexities and challenges, but there is grace for this. 
As a matter of fact, I want to share with you Peter's perspective on the Savior's suffering. Many of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. It is in 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's verses 19 through 23. This is what Peter was telling his believers as he was writing out the second chapter of his letter. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so there are some times when we sin and we just deserve whatever comes our way. And then there's other times when things come our way, but we did not do anything to instigate the hurt that has come upon us. Now, Peter says his second situation, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God when we endure through unjust suffering. And then he makes a slight transition as he says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then Peter begins to lay out some of the steps of the Savior. He said, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, there is a lot in this passage that we can apply to ourselves. And maybe we could just start with the last thing that he said, that we have to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly when people do unkind things to us. Peter wants us to learn how to walk in the steps of Jesus. And though your hurt might seem painful at this moment, you can emulate Christ as a beloved child of the Father. There is grace for this. Because of our great salvation, anyone can be free from the relational problems that entangle them, including unjust suffering. But beware, here's a warning. Freedom comes with a price. If we're going to walk in the steps of Christ, we already know there is a smell of death that lingers, that hovers over the Savior, and we are asked to walk in His wake as we follow Him in His steps. The smell of death is always in the air when forgiveness is the need of the hour which is why there is such an active call in God's Word to die to ourselves. And I do want to point out active call. This is not a passive exercise where we can just let go and let God. That is not how God wants us to relate to Him. He wants us to actively engage Him, actively engage His Word, because we have to die to ourselves. As Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, that is an echo of what Peter is saying, if anyone will walk in my steps, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Forgiveness is a complex message, but it is the perfect response for relational reconciliation. We must always forgive others 
attitudinally. That is the lowest bar. No matter what has happened to you, no matter who has done what to you, you have to forgive them attitudinally. An attitude or a heart of forgiveness doesn't release them from what they have done to you. It doesn't require them to come to you and ask you for forgiveness, even though they should do that. An attitude of forgiveness, a heart of forgiveness, it releases you so that you're no longer managed by what someone did to you. And isn't that unfortunate? Haven't you seen that? Where people are managed by what other people did to them, even though what they did to them could have been 40 years ago. The lowest bar on the forgiveness stratification is attitudinal forgiveness, where we work with God asking Him to give us the grace so that we can appropriate that grace in a practical way so we're no longer managed by what someone else has done to us. That is a heart of forgiveness or what I am calling attitudinal forgiveness, and we must always forgive attitudinally. Well, the goal, of course, is transactional forgiveness, if the other person is willing to cooperate. And so if someone has sinned against you, I mean, your prayer, my prayer, is that they would come to you and say, hey, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you and I need for you to forgive me. And that is a transaction of forgiveness. Now, of course, we, knew we need to do the same thing as well. Our lives, our internal soul noise will never be right without learning and applying these concepts. Some of the saddest people that you will ever meet are those who refuse to forgive, those who have sinned against them. I have counseled scores of these hurt people. Their stories are heartbreaking. People have profoundly hurt them, and their pain is real, and it is unending. And any discussion about forgiveness with them is nearly always met with deep emotional angst and sometimes hostility. Many of these fellow strugglers do not need a rebuke. In most of these cases, I say, a gentle and courageous and biblical caregiver is what they need to restore them. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 6.1, If any person is, is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, you restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. I know sometimes the temptation could be to rebuke and confront them because they're holding on to unforgiveness. Now, maybe that is what they need eventually. But as you probably have experienced, the hurt that happens to us can go deep into our souls. And it's not amputatable, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. But it is a mortification issue where we have to take the vitality out of that offense. And you just can't do that overnight. It can take a long time depending on what the individual has done to you. And so with, with, with as much patience and compassion as you can muster, you want to lead them to the only freedom that they can have, which they can find, through Christ's attitude of forgiveness toward those who sinned against Him. To care for an offended soul, you must steward their two realities to care for them well. Number one, 
the hurt they are experiencing is legit. It is real. That is one reality. You don't want to jump this link in the chain as though what they are going through is not that important or is not that complex. Many times it is hard to overwork, uh, to, to over to work over it, to work through it. And so reality number one, the hurt that they are experiencing, you must help them to steward whatever that hurt is. And then number two, there is a process, and they need to forgive the person who has hurt them. And though I can talk about these things in a matter of seconds, it may take a matter of weeks or even months to help someone just to embrace these two realities, trying to understand what has happened in them, helping them to steward uh, what they are experiencing, and then helping them to process and then move forward to a place of forgiveness attitudinally or transactionally. Sometimes uncaring caregivers will press a person to forgive someone when they just cannot do it at this time. Now, I have been in this boat. For those of you who have followed my story over the years, you have some familiarity with the things that have happened to me. You know, I've talked often about my abusive alcoholic father who uh, was just unbelievably unkind to all five of our boys. I have talked about the murder of my two older brothers in 1987 and, and 1997. Those are not things that you can just flip a switch and be okay. Those are not things where you want to manipulate forgiveness out of the offended or the hurting person. Oh, sure, maybe they could mouth the words, I forgive you, but there's a possibility that it will not be authentic because their hearts did not genuinely produce those words. And so we want to be patient with people. Now, I'm not talking about going all the way over to the other ditch where there is never a call to action for this individual to work through attitudinal or transactional forgiveness. But I'm guarding this ditch over here, first of all, that we do not want to be harsh, unkind, impatient when there is deep hurt happening in someone's soul. And though they must not hold on to the unforgiveness forever, this other ditch, it does take time to work through the complexity of the soul to let an offense go. Even if they are only releasing the offender from their own heart, going back to attitudinal forgiveness, because the offender is not asking, the only thing that the offended can do is have a heart of forgiveness because the offender has never come forward to transact relational forgiveness. Now, this is a counterintuitive message. What I'm talking about here is very different from what our culture teaches and what they live out on a daily basis. You could say that this is, it falls under the category of the foolishness of God. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Like nearly everything else in the Christian life, forgiveness is upside down. And Paul talked about how God's ways appear weak and, and foolish compared to ours. Our ways is, is strength, and we just want to, to hit them. We just want to put them in their place. 
The cross of Christ was amazingly foolish to his disciples. It was so hard for them to comprehend that they even ran away. They ran away when they were supposed to stay put and make a stand for their leader. A dying man on a tree was counterintuitive to their beliefs and everything that they hoped for from Jesus. I mean, wait, what? He's supposed to rule the world. Well, in time, the disciples began to get a clue. They began to see how the gospel was not what they thought it was. It's a counterintuitive message. And after a season of re-envisioning, they reacquainted themselves with the foolishness and weakness of God. And when they did, it began to look like real power and true wisdom from another kingdom. Forgiveness is one of those counterintuitive planks in the gospel's platform. God calls all of us to forgive each other attitudinally. That is the lowest rung on the ladder. We have to get to that spot so that we are not incarcerated by what happened to us. And then, maybe, there could be that sweet place of transactional forgiveness between the offender and the offended. And no matter the pain... No matter the regret, no matter the disappointment, we have to be working toward forgiveness with other people. One of the ironies of unforgiveness is how the offended is the one that is experiencing unending suffering when they don't forgive. Unwillingness to forgive the perpetrator of the sin will only perpetuate the offended's suffering. It's like the incremental sipping of bitter water. Each time the victim thinks about what someone did to them while holding on to an unforgiving attitude, they hurt themselves. And in most situations, the unforgiving person doesn't fully realize how holding on to unforgiveness makes things worse for them. Unforgiveness never makes things better because God will not bless anyone who persists in holding on to an unforgiving attitude toward anyone. I remember counseling a lady uh, one time, and uh, actually in my counseling, as many of you know, I will sketch out pictures to draw these spiritual concepts so that people can physically see what I'm trying to communicate to them. As a matter of fact, if you go to lifeovercoffee.com and you scroll down to the footer of the website, you will see a link that says shareables. And if you click on that link, shareables, you'll, you'll see these blue chiclets and one of those boxes, blue boxes, uh, it will say infographics. And you click on infographics, you will see over 130 of these infographics. And every one of them were sketches that I drew out in counseling sessions through the years. Now, they have been they have been spiced up a little bit because the sketches that I drew were on paper and they were mostly stick figures. And so I, I kind of enhanced these to a better quality, but they all came from counseling sessions. And so I was sketching out a concept for this lady. And this lady was living here in South Carolina where I live. And her parents were in Mexico this was probably 20 years ago, back in the late 90s. And I drew out uh, a little stick person of her uh, in South Carolina. And then uh, her parents over here in Mexico, thousands of miles away, 
3,000 miles away. And I wanted her to visually see where she was and where her parents were and how much control that her parents had over her, even though her parents had no clue that they were controlling her so much. And that's what happens when offended people are not able to attitudinally overcome what happened to them. And I've seen many illustrations in my counseling career of people who have passed away decades ago, but the people that they offended, the ones that were left behind, many times the children, sometimes a spouse, and that spouse or that child will still be incarcerated by what that individual did to them, even though that person has passed away a long time ago. And so if we cannot work through this unforgiving attitude, well, we have more problems than we realize. In fact, Paul teaches us how the Lord's displeasure rains down from heaven on any person who presses his truth out of their lives. And I don't want to be unkind here, but when we hold on to sin, even the sin of unforgiveness, including the sin of unforgiveness, God's His wrath will rain down from heaven because we are pushing God's truth out of our lives. And when we begin to press God's truth out of our lives, we will have more problems than just the unforgiveness that we have been harboring. That was the testimony of King David, by the way. As long as he kept silent about the sin that he carried in his heart, the more he experienced the Lord's wrathful displeasure. You read about it in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. He said it quite clearly, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. When the unforgiving person continues to hold on to unforgiveness, he will accrue the deterioration of both the body and the soul. His body will begin to break down, as David was saying in Psalm 32, and of course there will be so much soul dysfunction. And ironically, the perpetrator, the offender, the one who caused the suffering in many cases, whether they're in Mexico or whether they are have passed away many years ago, they are unaware of this soul-deteriorating effect on the one that they have hurt. Unforgiveness is not just one sin. Unforgiveness will never hibernate in autonomy. It's like cancer when left to its own devices. A gathering constellation of sins will emerge with the intent of devouring its prey. Kind of reminds you of what Peter was saying in 5.8, that the devil is like a roaring lion and he is crouching at the door, rearing up, ready to pounce upon anyone. And if we continue to harbor one sin in our lives, unforgiveness is the topic of the day, there will be other sins that will begin to glom on to that one. In fact, I want to share with you 
a non-exhaustive list of some of the more common problems that unforgiving people experience. Now, I would encourage you to use this list for self-analysis as you examine yourself to see if you're holding on to any unforgiveness toward another person. And so I want to talk about this glomming on effect. Let's say that, that Biff is unforgiving toward Mabel. Mabel has sinned against Biff. Biff is holding on to unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will not just idle there in autonomy. No, it will spin and spin and it will collect more sins as it continues to spin around and churn in Biff's heart. And these other sins will begin to glom on to unforgiveness until eventually you have this metastasized complexity of multi-sins operative in Biff's heart. Here's one of them, gossip. The unforgiving, the unforgiving person regularly talks negative about others, especially those who hurt them. It's not unusual for gossip to be in play when unforgiveness is operative in the heart. By the way, for those of you who care for others, you do the work of discipleship or maybe biblical counseling, when you hear an individual talking about somebody negatively, sinfully, more than likely, unforgiveness is spinning in their heart, and now gossip has glommed onto it. It's essential to remember that. And so you want to hear that. Now, you're not being suspicious of them. You're not being judgmental of them, but you're being biblically reasonable. I mean, if you're gossiping about this individual, well, I can conclude several things. One, you don't care for that person. That is a nice way of saying biblical hate. You don't like that person. You're critically gossiping about them. Well, guess what? You can't gossip about somebody unless you're looking down on them. So now you've got unforgiveness and you have gossip and you have self-righteousness. And of course, gossip is a form of anger. You see how the spinning of unforgiveness will collect all of these other sins. Gossip is one of them. Criticalness is another. The unforgiving, the unforgiving person tends to express more negativity than positivity about their life. An unforgiving person, they're just not sunshiny people. And I'm not talking about some kind of faux optimism. I'm not talking about a person who, who is disconnected from the reality of fallenness. But I'm talking about a person who is characterized as a critical person person. They tend to express more negativity than positivity about life, whether it's them or others. You can also hear the word cynicism in this idea of criticalness in this context of the unforgiving person. Of course, the third, I mentioned gossip, I mentioned criticalness. The third would be joylessness. You would not characterize the unforgiving person as happy, joyful, or hopeful. And that's kind of tied or flows out of criticalness. And so you can see that spinning effect. Gossip gloms on. Criticalness is a form of gossip. Now this is how they are characterized. And of course, that is a joy-sucking characteristic. And so now there is joylessness happening to them. Here's a fourth one. I think that's four. Yeah, gossip, criticalness, joylessness, and self-deception. 
The unforgiving person is unwilling to see their situation with biblical clarity. You see, God opposes the proud. This is what James was saying in James 4, 6, and that means that God is a warring army against this person here, this proud individual. Now, that's going to muck up everything. That's going to cloud the lens when God is coming against you in all his warring ways. Uh, it's going to create the inability to see with the clarity, because in order to see with clarity, you need grace for that. And God only gives grace for the humble, but he is warring against the proud. And so there's going to be self-deception happening. They're not going to be able to read the room. They're not going to be able to discern objective realities of what's going on because of this cluster of sin that's spinning in their hearts. Naturally, it would lead to self-deception. Number five is lying. The unforgiving person tends to spend the truth to put themselves in a better light. Now, that's just natural. Uh, we are very loyal to ourselves, and so if we're holding on to unforgiveness, then the weight of the negative talk is going to be about what other people did to them. Now, this will be a sensitive situation that you would have to work through. It would be exceptional for both parties to, or for one party to be completely 100% innocent of all the things that have happened in this complex relationship. Maybe they had nothing to do with the offense that has been leveled down on them, but you will find a history in most cases in this relationship. Uh, but the person who is offended, uh, the danger is that they will not have the self-deception. They will not have the self-awareness uh, to see their role in this relationship as clearly as they should. And you'll find the weight of their complaint all Always tilted toward what the other person did to them. I'm calling that lying. And then there is anger. I've already mentioned it earlier because gossip is a form of anger. Criticalness is a form of anger as well. But I wanted to give it its own slot here because anger is such a contagion in all of our lives. The unforgiving person exhibits various forms of unrighteous anger. And then there is bitterness, and I'll just stop there. The unforgiveness, the unforgiving person's ongoing anger eventually turns into bitterness or sourness. You cannot hold or harbor anger in your heart for an extended period of time without it affecting you. Very similar to harboring unforgiveness in your heart. You have this spinning of unforgiveness, and then these other sins are just going to be brought into that gravitational pull. I have just mentioned a handful of them here. Gossip, criticalness, joylessness, self-deception, lying, anger, and bitterness. And this is a, a downward spiral effect of unrepented sin. And of course, the person will be, they're, they're offended. The, and when you bring these things up to them, and this would, be the, this would be the challenge, the unforgiving person will be defensive and they will be quick to retaliate because they view life through the lens of their hurt. They will view life through the lens of their victimness. Now, I am not saying that the victimness is unreal. No, it's very real. But the dangerous backside, the dangerous liability to being sinned against by someone is that we can elevate ourselves to such a place of righteousness that we can lose all cognizance of our culpability in 
and whatever went on in the uh, deterioration or the demise of the relationship. And so what you will end up with is a victim-center construct, and that happens all too often. And they will want you to focus on their victimness, which you should in appropriate biblical ways, but you might also have to uh, focus on their sinfulness as well if they want to be uncoupled and unburdened from what is happening to them. You see, sin will not discriminate. Just because someone is offended, it doesn't mean that they are impervious to sin's multifaceted encroachments, as I have been outlining here. And I only gave a few possibilities of what can happen to the recipient of someone else's offenses. Refusing to forgive a fellow sinner is a posture that perpetuates pain while keeping the offended person in a self-erected prison. And they're, what they have to do at this juncture is that they have to make a, an objective, sincere choice to choose freedom over incarceration. Living with the freedom of a forgiving spirit is one of the hardest things that you'll ever do, especially if someone has hurt you. Going back to when my second brother was murdered and 1997, I vividly remember working through the process of forgiving my sister-in-law, uh, uh, my brother's wife, for murdering him. That process did not come easy. It was not an amputatable thing. I could not just I wish I could turn the switch off. I wish I could find the lever to pull, but I struggled to take my soul to task, especially since she was not asking for forgiveness. And so without the opportunity to forgive her transactionally, I had to wrestle with God to free my soul from the hurt that I carried in my sinful attitude toward her. I became the victim center. The victimization was real. It was real to our entire family. But I cannot detach myself from such self-awareness that I, do not, I no longer discern that I am sinning because of this thing that happened to me. I could try to take the posture of, of righteous anger toward her, but <laughs> that's just not true. I, I had a sinful heart toward her. And so when I say these things, many of you have been offended deeply. You have been hurt by people. I'm, I'm sharing this story with you because I understand. I really do understand. And in time, I was able to forgive her attitudinally. Now, I do not know if she has asked God to forgive her. I hope she has. I hope there has been vertical transactional forgiveness as she has requested it from God and God has granted it to her. But she has not received my transactional forgiveness because she has never asked for it. But here's the key. In so many situations, her lack of asking, it did not stop me from being fully released from what she did to our family. Now, God has done miraculous work in my heart. I'm not a super spiritual person. I have my issues. I have many 
struggles that I'm working through. And so the grace that God provides is not for the exceptional. It's for those who want it and those who are genuine and those who want to work through, seriously work through the hurt that is happening to them. It, it is where they're more focused on the dynamics of their own soul than what the other individual has done. I have to be free regardless of what the other person does. And so the lowest rung on the ladder is attitudinal forgiveness. And so, Lord, give me a spirit, an attitude of forgiveness toward that person. And maybe at some point in the future there can be transactional forgiveness, but we need to unburden ourselves first before. In fact, you want to unburden yourself first before you engage in a transactional uh, event with the person who has offended or hurt or sinned against you. Because if you do not have an attitude of forgiveness toward them before you begin speaking to them, well, guess what? Things are going to get more complicated because you have a sinful attitude. You don't have a spirit of forgiveness toward them. You engage them with what they did, uh, that's going to go to some bad places quite quickly. And so it is essential, step number one, God release me from what they did. And then step number two, God, I want to be part of your restoration team. I want to do what Paul was saying in Galatians 6 1. You who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself so that you too are not tempted. And that is exactly what the Lord did in relationship to my sister-in-law, who would be my former sister-in-law now after she killed my brother in 1997. And though I can still cry when I think about him, I have been set free from the soul entanglements that easily capture the unforgiving heart. Now, perhaps you are struggling to forgive someone who has hurt you. It's a pain. It's a pain that I do not need to explain because you are living it each day. The reminders are everywhere, and your mind can be quickly captivated by what that person did to you. You can simply be walking down the street, and you just see a reminder of the person that uh, sinned against you or something that's connected to that relationship, and you find your your soul just spiraling because you're, you're connecting what you just saw to what happened to you. This is a difficult thing, and we do have to have enough self-awareness to know that we are captivated and we need God's grace and mercy operating in our lives. To walk out of that dark tunnel, the first thing that you have to do is so obvious, but I do want to state it, is that you have to pray. You have to pray often. But as you pray, it is a particular kind of prayer. You need to ask yourself a few hard questions. And all of these questions center on why you are unwilling, or maybe why you just don't want to, or maybe why you're having a hard time forgiving the person who has hurt you. When I did my self-examination regarding my sister-in-law, there are at least seven reasons why I was reluctant to let it go. Now, I want to share those seven reasons with you. And as I share the reason, 
I want to ask you a question about each one. And I would love for you to stop the tape and and reflect on these questions that I'm about to ask you. As you take them to the Lord, this is the type of praying that I want you to do. I want you to pray specifically, and I'm going to give you seven questions that you can ask the Lord, that you can talk about as He does His work in your heart. If you're one of those people uh, that's still harboring unforgiveness, an attitude of unforgiveness toward someone all right, so uh, number one, and, and I've, I've titled or I've, I've given each one of these things that I struggled with a, a one-word label, and then I'll ask you a question, a question that perhaps you can talk to God about. And so the first of the seven was punishment. I wanted to see her punished, and, and that is a common response. I mean, we're made in the image of God. God is a God of justice. But sometimes we can want to uh, eke out that justice when it's really not our place or it's not our time to do that. And when we get ahead of, of God's justice and what God might have in mind here, our punishment can be sinful. And I wanted to see punishment, and I wanted to see it now. I was not entrusting myself to him who judges justly. The passage that I read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 23 specifically. And so here's the question. Do you have any desire for someone, uh, for someone to punish the offender, to punish the individual who hurt you? Now, that is a closed-ended question, and I understand that, so you can answer it yes or no, but I would really like for you to work with the question. And so is there any desire in your heart to see that person punished? Are you truly entrusting yourself to him who judges justly? And so punishment was one of the reasons that I held on to an attitude of forgiveness. Number two, fearfulness. Are you afraid that forgiving them will permit them to hurt you again? You see, sometimes people will hold on to unforgiveness because it erects a barrier, and it truly does. It erects a spiritual force field, a barrier between the offender and the offended. I am afraid that if I release them, I forgive you. I forgive you looks like open arms, which means I can get punched in the face again. And so fear is a real controlling dynamic in our hearts, and we really need to say this aloud. Am I afraid? Not only do I want to punish them, but I'm afraid to let them go by forgiving them because maybe they will do it again. Number three is unbelief. The question is, do you believe God will fully take care of what happened to you? I talked about entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. If you cannot entrust yourself to him who judges justly, then you're operating in unbelief. I'm not talking about you will lose your salvation, that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. You can't lose your salvation. If God has regenerated you, you can't become unborn again. But in our sanctification, in our progressive walk with God, as we are maturing up into manhood and womanhood, we can have pockets of sin in our life. We can function as unbelieving believers. 
And so if we do not believe that God's going to make this right, we may take matters into our hands. And so the question is, do you believe God will fully take care of what happened to you? That's number three. And so I was struggling with punishment. I was struggling with fearfulness. I was struggling with unbelief. And then number uh, four, I was struggling with control. Does unforgiveness allow you to stay in control of the situation? Now, this is somewhat tied to um, fearfulness that I was talking about earlier. See, fearfulness creates this kind of force feel uh, that keeps them from hurting you again. Well, that fearfulness is, is undergirded by a desire to control the situation. Of course, the control is motivated by unbelief. I don't believe that God will take care of this. I will take control of the situation. And one of the ways that I will control the situation is by holding on to my unforgiveness. And so number four is control. Number five is righteousness. Do you believe you are better than the offender? Now, this will be tough because too often, and it's, it's not wrong to focus on the consequences of the sin. That's not necessarily wrong. We need to think about the consequences of, of what people do to us. But on another level, everybody is the same before Christ. There is no stratification of sin, that we are all the same, equally depraved, equally broken, equally lost, equally defiled before God. I'm not talking about the consequences of what someone does. I'm talking about our state of being. I'm talking about, it's an ontological question that I'm bringing up here, that there's no stratification of sinners, that we're all equally equally broken before God. And so if we do not see ourselves as equally broken as the next person, we can elevate ourselves above them thinking that we're better than them when Paul is ringing in our ears saying, "What have you received that you did not that was not given to you? Anything that we have that that could in any possibility make us better than any other individual. It was given to us by God's grace, and so we can't operate as though we I'm better than you because of what I've done. No, if you're higher than anybody in God's economy, it is because of the grace of God. And so there are only two stratifications, the totally depraved crowd and those who have been redeemed by grace. But that redemption by grace was a gift given, not a status that was earned through your good deeds. And so we can't look at anyone as though that we are better than them. Number uh, six is acceptance. Now here's a little twist here that I want you to think about. Do you, do you manipulate sympathy, the sympathy of others that they can give you for what happened to you? Some people will use their suffering as a way to garner acceptance, a way to manipulate approval or affection or love. And these are not the kinds of friends that you want, people who will commiserate with you. They're, they're not courageously spurring you on to loving good deeds, uh, but you're manipulating them. And then now both of you have some kind of... Um, pity party as you look at what they did to you, uh, but you're using the suffering. We use the suffering that we have as a way to manipulate other people so that we can feel accepted or loved. I may or may not have been doing that. And then number seven, identity. Are you finding your identity in your suffering rather than Christ? 
this is one of the ways where you want to be careful about talking about the things that have happened to you. You don't want that to be your identity. Oh, he's the suffering person, or he's the individual whose two brothers were murdered, or or whatever. We don't want our uh, our, our tragedies, our bad circumstances. We don't want the sinful things that have happened to us. We don't want to gain an, an identity through that. By the way, there's an entire victim culture that does that today. That is their identity. And I'm not just talking about the culture uh, that is unchristian that we see on uh, social media every day. I mean, they are identity-centric as they talk about uh, their suffering and all that has happened to them. It is a community. It is a, a collegial way of, of building relationships with other. They find acceptance uh, by talking about what happened to them, and then that becomes their identity. That's number six and seven on my list, acceptance and identity. I've titled this, What's Happening When I Won't Forgive Someone? I just wanted to walk through some of the complications that could happen to any of us if we hold on to unforgiveness. And so while I don't want to minimize or trivialize what has happened to you because it's real, I do want to bring warning, warning to my own soul and warning to anyone that's listening or watching this, that we can set ourselves up for a lot of heartache, and there could be motivations that are nefariously working inside of our hearts that's entangling us as this unforgiveness continues to spin in the orbit of our souls, collecting this constellation of sins and sin patterns that will eventually incarcerate us and turn us into something that we do not want to become because it will not be a replication of what Jesus Christ looks like. And so there is a serious call to action on our lives to take our souls to task as we, with humility, look in the mirror and say that, that do I have an attitude of forgiveness for what that person did to me? Uh, can I get to that place in my sanctification so that maybe I can get to the next step and there could be legit transactional forgiveness also? Only the Lord can grant the repentance for any of us to let go of unforgiveness. And so I've given you a list of things to talk to God about, as I've identified seven things in my life that I was holding on to that was keeping me from getting to a place of, of attitudinal forgiveness, in this case, to my sister-in-law. But that prayer also has to uh, it has to be active in the sense of, God, only you can grant repentance. Only you can change me. And God will change us. He will do this by working His good will in our lives while He's expecting us to practically work it out. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 2. God works in us, and then we work it out. That's that relationship, that cooperative relationship that we have with the Lord. And so the call to repentance is both a passive and active action. God grants uh, forgiveness. God grants repentance. That is the active action. But we have to respond to that as well. And so if God is moving you toward a heart of forgiveness, then you want to cooperate with what He is working in you. You want to respond to His good work.
We all have hurt others, and others have sinned against us. And I trust that you will model your Savior as you appropriate His grace in areas that need to be changed. Perhaps the Spirit of God has illuminated a thing or two in your life uh, that will help you to identify maybe an area that you need to change. As I wrap up here, I want to give you just a few more questions to consider as you process all of this information that I've been sharing with you. Now, if you have a friend who will walk with you, then please get in touch with that person. And and I would ask that both of you just pray through the content of what you have just heard. And then as we wrap up, work through these questions here with a friend would be ideal. And so let me finish And I'll uh, share these questions and then we'll be done. Number one, have you been sinned against by someone? Has a person hurt you? Will you describe what happened? Number two, what do you think about that person? How do you think about that person? What is your attitude toward them? My favorite text on this, by the way, is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the the first nine verses. In those nine verses, you hear Paul's attitude toward the Corinthians. It's his first letter, not his second. He's getting ready to write to some of the meanest and nastiest people that he encountered during his life. But his preface, the way that he talked to them initially, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first nine verses, perhaps make a note of it. And I would want you to hear Paul's attitude toward these nasty people. He had a God-centered, Christ-centered, grace-centered attitude toward them. How do you think about the person who has hurt you? What is your attitude toward them? Number three, will you forgive them attitudinally, even though they have not come to you seeking your forgiveness for what they did to you? Now, if you cannot forgive them attitudinally, what is keeping you from doing this? And then number four, if you cannot at least forgive them from the heart, would you seek the help that you need until you can accomplish this? Will you fight? Will you fight for your freedom in Christ? Take your time. Forgiveness is not something that you can amputate. I've said that a couple of times already. It will take time, so there's no need to hurry. And then after you work through these questions and you discuss them with a friend and you you both conclude that you have a a heart of forgiveness uh, for uh, this individual, perhaps your next prayer would be, God, would you orchestrate circumstances in in such a way uh, that maybe we can get to the place of transactional forgiveness? Now, maybe the individual is ready to transact forgiveness with you, but you have to do the prerequisite heart work to get an attitude of forgiveness. If they are ready and you have a heart of forgiveness toward them, then go and transact and reconcile that relationship. Remove the thing that is hindering both of you, but if they're not ready to transact forgiveness, at least, at least you be free uh, from what they did to you.
I do want to share with you that I, I have a book here, and this is the most popular book. I'm not surprised that it is, but it's the most popular book in our ministry. It's called Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. Job said that the thing that I have feared has come upon me, and he was very much afraid uh, that something bad would happen to his children, and it certainly did. And so suffering came into his life, and he had to learn how to steward what became a great blessing. And I think most of us would have that testimony. Some of the harshest things that have happened to us have become our greatest blessings. And for this ministry, without question, uh, my the suffering that I've gone through has created the launch pad for this ministry. And so the thing that I have feared has come upon me. And so when the bad things come, we need to know how to steward that suffering. Suffering well, you can get it on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Rick Thomas, lifeovercoffee.com. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.